This is the Lake Ridge Faith and Culture Podcast with our series, God Rules. Women want more rights, more access to abortion, more freedom, not less. Hell is knowing your truth and lacking the courage to live it. I don't care. I have lots of things I disagree with about the Bible. Why are we doing even a series on the Ten Commandments? The law was always meant to communicate God's character and God's truth and the reality of how God made the world. An articulation of our purpose, what it means to be human according to God's intent. Here's what happens when you balk at structure, balk at God's guidelines and boundaries that he's posted. It's not good what takes its place. So when God gives us these instructions, basically it, it, it implies you're a bunch of lying, fornicating, self-worshiping yeah. louts, you know. We shouldn't think about them as arbitrary rules, but we should think about them as God showing us the way to live fulfilling, long-lasting life in the world. We believe the enemy is after your mind and heart, and as shepherds, we're jumping into the fray. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the conversation. And we're back all together again to discuss the seventh commandment. We're here with all the usual suspects. We'll go around the circle the other way. We've got Keith Lowry here. Hi, guys. We've got Jeremy on the knobs and, and doodads. And we've got Van Minter. What's up, ladies? Kyle Wisdom. Hey, howdy, hey. And myself, Ben Lowry. And like I said, we're talking about the seventh commandment today. Um, you shall not commit adultery. Um, so, Van, what's up with adultery? It's bad. We should, yeah. There it is. <laughs> Not good. You know, we we've talked about this throughout the series that there, you get to some of these commandments and you feel like, do we really need to put more meat on that bone than is already there? Like, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. They seem pretty obvious at face value, but um, the nuance really isn't in the command. The nuance is probably in the condition of our hearts, because our hearts find ways of transgressing these commandments um, in nuanced ways. And so it may not always be as obvious as, say, stealing an object or uh, murdering somebody or, or blatant adultery. Um, what do you guys see? Do you, do, you, do you think that we live in a culture of sexual chastity? Is, w- w- would you say that that defines our culture? Yes or no? First, I don't know how many in our culture would be able to define the word chastity uh, or recognize the, just the term. But no, we do not live in a in a culture of chastity. We live in a culture of sexual expression. Uh, they refer to it as sexual liberation, though I do not think they. I do not think it means what they think it means. Yeah. You know, the word of God refers to people as adulterous generations. You know, people that lack a commitment to what they should uh, be committed to. And so I I would say that certainly doesn't. um, We would fit that bill of an adulterous generation, I think. Mm. Yeah. Lacking commitment on a personal level uh, as a a nation. But that was, you know, for God's people too, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, being an adulterous nation or an adulterous people generation um i think in the israelite context would have been you've forsaken your uh obligations Mm -hmm. to god and sold yourselves out to you know bad ideas pagan ideas you know pagan gods whatever um so so to define adultery as the forsaking of one's obligation or the exclusive right of sexual intimacy, specifically uh, to one's spouse, and sort of, um, you know, farming that out to who, you know, whoever, uh, wherever. I think, I think, um, in a weird way, our culture is not for unfaithfulness, but we just find new ways of sort of dignifying the unfaithfulness so one of the trends right now um is 
uh, polyamory. Hmm. Um, and the polyamorous are those who identify as basically they're not built, they're wired in a unique way. Their sexual identity as a polyamorous person is to have multiple romantic sexual partners. And there are married couples who talk openly online and in TikTok videos and what have you about their multiple polyamorous partners. Mm -hmm. And so, whereas as a culture, if a couple, like a young couple got married and then one of the people went off and was unfaithful and had, you know, relations with someone, not their spouse, the culture in general would say, that's not a good person. That person shouldn't do that. Yeah. But if you call it polyamorous, then, oh, oh, right. This was a, this was an instance of self-expression and, Right. And I think, too, um, a lot of it is really trying to, like you said, sort of redefine things away. Because I think what we've tried to do when we talk about specifically monogamy, the idea that one man belongs to one woman, I think the reason that that's so chafed against, well, for a number of reasons, but I think one is it pushes back against self-expression because you are now bound to a person. And so what they've tried to do is conflate the desire for someone to be faithful with a possessiveness mm. idea. Like, which in some ways, as Christian, I would actually go, uh, y- yes. <laughs> but they sort of want to make it seem uh, icky or gross or like, oh, you just want to possess that person. You want to be controlling because you want them to, you know, be faithful to you. You don't want them to be happy. Right. Why would you not want them to be happy? Yeah, you're standing in the way of their immediate live their best sexual life. gratification. Yeah, and therefore you are an enemy to their true happiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That there's a, there was a term for that um, uh, for, for for people who live within that realm, and it's it was the cuckold. Hmm. Um, short word would be cuck, and it, it's somebody whose wife was sort of off giving her. Um, body to other men and he's sort of duped into thinking everything's okay and yeah. you know everyone kind of knows that's going on but he doesn't that person was a cuckold he's a fool yeah um and in our culture sort of like that person is virtuous he's letting his wife go off and live her best life now and isn't he giving is isn't he nice to share you know yeah oh, um sorry <clears throat> uh world there is this um persistent um a delusion, maybe is the right way to say it, that <clears throat> self-indulgence leads to uh, fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we've talked about this in prior podcasts about, you know, I think it was about abortion where we said that the notion that, you know, if I just make my life more convenient, then everything good will follow was, was delusional. Uh, and I think this is another area where if I just indulge myself, uh, to satisfy my sexual interest, then ergo everything happy and good will accrue to me. And uh, I think it just, you know, just the wisdom of Scripture sort of points to the fact that that's, that's not going to happen. I think, um, you know, there's this recent event at the Oscars where Will Smith stormed up on stage and slapped Chris Rock because he had made this sort of joke about Will Smith's wife, except that, and so he's sort of showing his manly protectiveness to his wife, but they're famous in Hollywood as a couple who has an open marriage and they just each sleep with whoever they want to. So I'm not sure, you know, you really can't call that a marriage, but clearly there's this sort of downstream anxiety and frustration and dysfunction on full display on national television right. uh, at, that's sort of tied to this notion that we can just indulge ourselves and it'll all be good. It's not all good. Yeah, but I, th- I think to Ben's point, though, the culture does have a concept of, like, a cheater, someone who betrays the trust of a of a significant other. I think that is only grounded, though, as long as... It's, it's only grounded in the emotional health of the person, though. It's not intrinsic to the setup. I think, I think we still have it, and I, but I would say it's at, um, 
it's it's at risk. Of, <laughs> it's at risk of, of going be- going belly up, going <laughs> the way of the dodo bird, because I think there are other um, there are other examples that you could probably point to in cinema where the person who goes off and has that affair is really the victim, the mm, victim of a yeah. boring marriage, mm. the victim of an uninspiring spouse. And so yeah. they needed to break free from the monotony yeah. of a life that wasn't thrilling to them. And so you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so there's a really fascinating example of this actually from the, the 90 show Friends, where one of the main characters uh, very early on in the show, like the first episode or two, you basically find out that his his wife now has taken a lesbian lover in this show. And so the whole show is sort of the comedy of his like, oh no, like this my my marriage has fallen apart because this is a lifestyle comedy, my wife has yeah. chosen. How hilarious. And so I know, it's it's sad. But what's interesting about it is the rest of the show, there's no animosity towards the wife for what she did to that person's marriage. And the rest of the show is sort of finding ways to affirm her in her choices, even to the point where they eventually have a same-sex marriage in the show. And he actually makes the line in the show. He goes, if she was marrying a man, no one would expect me to go to this. But it's propped up in this moment of the show of, like, virtue that he would go and support this thing because it now jumps from the category of unfaithfulness to, to your point, something else. Mm -hmm. It's a... It's an expression of something deeper that he should just get on board with. You know, in a prior episode, we talked about murder and how, in some instances, murder has been um, lauded as a virtuous thing. We talked about mercy killings. We talked about abortion. We talked about a number of things. I think that the same is obviously true, obviously true, at an even greater level of sexual license. Um to, to your point, Kyle, there's forms of sexual license, and they fall in the alphabet soup of the LGBTQIA and um, the the multicolored flag and all of this. Um, they fall within that realm. Anything that you can pinpoint and say, this is who I am or how I... And it's all sort of a sexual, personal, gender, identity, express, expressivism um, that gets up, you know, sort of lifted up as a virtue. And all under the flag of freedom and um where do we think like well, I, I want us to talk about do we do we think that the laws that god gives and the laws of a society that no longer exists that upheld you know like strict marriage laws um that that make divorce next to impossible only for certain extreme instances for instance um laws that forbade sodomy um, homosexual behavior. Uh, are, are those really oppressive, or 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 is there some benefit to um, preserving marriage and and for a society to fight to preserve marriage? And how did we get to this point of complete like like the delusion of sexual freedom? How how did we get here as a society? So I I think that. I mean, at the root of it all is the belief an individual has that what God has designed to work within a certain parameter, a husband-wife within marriage, that there's something better, the lie is there's something better to be had outside of that relationship, you know, that adage, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And, you know, the people that I know that have gone through divorce, and again, I know there are some exceptions as to why people divorce that would be justified in scripture but outside of those types of situations i i've not talked with any of them where they say you know what it, it actually did turn out for the better uh there's a, this is what paul writes in galatians god is not going to be mocked a man reaps what he sows and so when you go against the good design that god's given for anything um i to, to answer your question We've believed a lie. We think that there's something better outside of what he's given us to enjoy. We've just not taken the time to pursue that thing the way he intended for us to. And so we maybe listen to the world or listen to those outside voices that suggest, you know, you can fix that. You just need to look elsewhere. And so off we go. Hmm. And um, boy, 
I, I can just say I've I've witnessed and look, I love my mom and dad, and unfortunately, they went through a divorce after 29 years of marriage. And I honest, I don't even know all the details of what led to it, and but I can just tell you, bitter tears were shed on both sides, year in the years that followed, and it's just not. Mm. I'm thankful I saw that because it was just a reminder to me: don't don't ever buy into to the lie. Well, you're you know bringing that up highlights an important aspect of why societies, just societies. Um, Judeo-Christian societies have fenced in marriage so tightly for so many generations because when marriages fall apart uh, or when sexuality goes unhinged, it is destructive to so many lives. Um, and, and the damage is far-reaching and, and far-reaching in unforeseen ways, you know. Um, and, and one of the things that our society, I think, has done to help... Um, promote and and preserve the illusion of sexual freedom is sort of untethering or detethering sex from its results or from its fruits its productivity and I, and I think you know um, before that anyone who had sex was risking the thing that sex was for the thing that God created sex to do which was the, the production of children now, um, there's no risk of that. You don't have to risk that. You can have sex of any kind. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the abortion rulings followed on the heels of birth control rulings, and then homosexual marriage rulings followed on the heels of the abortion and the birth control rulings, and there's a downstream um, effect to uh, decoupling sex from procreation and... I think one of the things that I'm concerned with is that Christians seem to have bought the stage one. We've like we've embraced wholeheartedly stage one, decoupling sex from procreation, um, and we haven't seen that in doing so. There were certain necessary logical consequences well, that would come about. Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I think we're some, um, in, particularly in mainstream Protestant churches, and increasingly among evangelicals. There's an embrace of the second stage, which is not only is heterosexual sex to be decoupled from any considerations around procreation, but also, ergo, that means then that all other forms of sex are sort of openly possible. This past week, um, uh, there was an article in an opinion piece in the Washington Post written by a guy named Michael Gerson. Michael Gerson was the chief speechwriter and senior policy advisor to George W. Bush. He's widely known as an evangelical. He was raised in an evangelical home, grew up going to a Christian evangelical school, is a graduated a graduate of Wheaton. And he basically wrote an opinion piece celebrating Pride Month in the Washington Post. And this is a snippet of what he had to say. Among religious young people, certain questions are growing more insistent. Why should we assess homosexuality according to Old Testament law that also advocates the stoning of children who disobey their parents. Isn't it possible that the Apostle Paul's views on homosexuality reflected the standards of his own time rather than the views of Jesus, who never mentioned the topic? There is little wonder that, according to a Pew Research Center poll, over half of white evangelicals 50 and older oppose gay marriage, while over half of those under 50 years old in the same group support gay marriage. And Gerson went on to say he's going to go home and celebrate Pride Month. Here's my, here's, for, I'm making two points really here. On the one hand, I'm making the point that here's a prominent, you know, uh, mainstream accepted evangelical mainstream in, in the sense of the kind of the Washington corridor and the elite in our political culture as, as someone who's accepted and represents evangelicalism. And he's sort of buying into, um, he's sort of raising the question, why should we be bound by really old notions about sexuality and sexual expression. Um, and what, what really I find appalling is not just the embrace of homosexuality, but the complete lack of reasonable understanding about where sexual mores come from. And this kind of harkens back, Ben, to what you were talking about. It, what if... The sexual mores expressed in the in the Bible are have nothing to do 
with the momentary and passing culture, but have everything to do with setting boundaries in place in service to God's intent for sexuality, yeah. right? And so it may be that gay marriage is wrong, not just because Paul talked about it a long time ago, or because we, we there's other things in the Old Testament law we find distasteful. What if it's wrong because what God put in, in place sexuality for is undermined and dissipated and canceled by homosexual expressions? And the same thing could be true in the context of adultery, right? What if adultery by its definition is at odds with what God put in place at creation? And if you read the creation narrative, it says that a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And that is the intent, the design, the purpose, and sexual mores, as expressed in Scripture, are in service to that goal and the procreative aspect of that goal. But what we have going on now is not just kind of a blasé acceptance of uh, indifference to the procreative aspect among evangelicals. We actually have, you know, sort of outspoken leading evangelicals starting to make the argument that there is not even a point— to male-female sexual relations as as yeah. being morally uh, the standard. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's an indictment on modern um, Western culture and well, modern culture in general. We have extended the reach of our technological arm to to make ourselves masters of our own sexuality rather than uh, subjects of God's sexual design. Yeah. And we've done all that we can to create the illusion of mastery over the sexual experience or act. Um, and, uh, and you know, you could say a lot about the Catholic Church um, and, and be right in saying it, but one thing that they've got on the Protestant evangelical tradition is an intellectual and theological um, consistency from procreation, contraception, to abortion. You know, in the Catholic uh, way of saying things, Marriage must be um, open to life, and what's the? Well, it just it suddenly fled. It, it left me um, for life and open to life, or I can't remember. I can't remember what it is. Um, but but there's a reason that the Catholics have been the target of so many hostile uh, post Roe v. Wade overturning um, protests because they've been the most consistent in. Mm. Uh, speaking against pro, uh, contraception and abortion because they understand the relationship between the two. So, Ben, you asked a question. You said, how did we get here, right? Mm-hmm. So how did we move from sort of the classic Christian understanding of sex as being a procreation and unification act within the marriage covenant to sort of this sexual expression free-for-all that we have in our culture today? There's a really good book that, that a couple of us have read called Strange New World, it's sort of a, a smaller, condensed version of Carl Truman's book, uh, book The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Highly recommend for anyone to read. Um, but he traces some of these ideas historically, and there's two I want to bring up in this just for the sake of clarity. One is a guy named Rousseau, who we mentioned before, whose big contribution to philosophy was saying that what we are, what makes us most human We have naturally, and society corrupts us when we are civilized. Mm -hmm. So the forces around us from the institutions that we have, whether that's the church, whether that's the government, whether that's our community, are trying to control what is most true about us. And what would make us most happy. Right, and and so we would be most happy if the world would just leave us alone and let us follow our own desires, Mm -hmm. which is like, Anyone hearing that probably is going, wait, have we not always thought that way? (laughs) And then the second person to bring up for this particular discussion is a guy named Freud, who everyone thinks, you know, oh my goodness, isn't he the guy who like talks a lot of weird, creepy things about moms? Yes, yes, that's him. But he also brings up this idea that human beings are inherently and centrally sexual, that everything that makes us happy and everything that motivates us is sexual. And so these two ideas sort of get uh, pushed together in the Western mind to now we're at the point, once we have technologies like contraception, like abortion, we now have the ability to say, hey, wait a minute. If everything that we want is sexual in nature, and if what makes us most happy is society leaving us alone to those desires, then 
the only thing that's going to make us happy is if society leaves us alone, if the church leaves us alone, if the government leaves us alone to pursue whatever sexual desire we can find within ourselves. And that's what's going to make us happy. And that's just a complete overturning of the Christian perspective on what sex is. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, one of the founders of our nation said, no man is truly free until he's mastered himself. Mm. And, um, you know, self-mastery on the one hand by, you know, in the 21st century means I am the master of my own destiny. Hmm. Um, and so it's self-mastery uh, in service of um, self-promotion, self-expression. What the founder actually had in mind was self-mastery in the service of obedience um, and and the temperance of one's passions, Yeah, uh, you know, for the good of society and the good of one's neighbor. Yeah. Uh, and I think, too— I think what makes the adultery conversation so much more contentious in our culture is instead of seeing sex as something that we do, sexuality is in our culture seen as something that we are. And so to yeah. to try and prevent someone from pursuing that desire outside of their marriage, you're seen as trying to prevent who they are. Right. So it's no longer a, hey, that behavior is bad. Mm -hmm. You're seen as sort of saying, hey, you're, you are bad. Something mm -hmm. about you is bad. Mm -hmm. um, which technically a Christian would go, uh, yeah, you're a sinner. So yeah, we, we knew that already. We can already. say that too. We knew that already. You know, what but you're doing is bad and what you are is what bad. Wasn't going to go there, right. but yeah. now you brought it up. But, you know, I think the modern propensity is to say whatever my inclinations are, uh, are by definition good and yeah are my identity. And I think it's Rosaria Butterfield maybe who says, beware of the the danger of making your temptations your identity. You are not what you want. Yeah, mm -hmm. you, are, you are more than that. Uh, you know, something else I wanted to bring into this was this, this notion that if, if sexual mores are sort of expressed in service to God's goal for human sexuality, in the context of a committed relationship between a man and a woman, uh, then you would expect um, there to be the forces of evil sort of arrayed against that. And it's interesting, in Paul's first letter to Timothy in chapter 4, he, he talks about people who depart from the faith, and listen to what he says. He says in verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, uh, what is it that those demons and deceitful spirits teach? They forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. So one of the priorities of the demon, the demonic teaching, is to prevent the formation of sexually devoted men and women and the formation of of Christian homes. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, you can see that adultery at some level is kind of at the other end of that. It's the destruction of existing mm -hmm. uh, properly formed sexual relationships in homes, right? And so there's a sense in which there's a demonic agenda that's anti-sexual uh, fidelity, anti-devoted husbands and wives, anti-formation of believing homes. It and goes back to that First Principles series we did in this podcast, that the devil is proactively trying to undermine God's design yeah. In, yeah. in all things, that God put man and woman together um, in, in marriage for his glory and for the good of the earth, yeah. and the devil's going about doing all that he can to corrupt God's design in that way. Yeah, because the at least in that regard, the devil is not a fool. He understands what marriage is. Mm -hmm. It is not only one of the greatest gifts of flourishing that God gave to humanity, but it's also, according to Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, one of the most bold and dramatic displays of his character and his, and his redeeming nature, that the marriage is meant to be a display of, of God's faithful covenant love to his people and his people's covenant faithful love back to him uh, for what he's done for them. Mm -hmm. That God's love is uniquely displayed 
And our love for God is uniquely displayed in the marriage covenant so that uh, to have a marriage that is functioning the way God designed it is to have a city on a hill, a beacon of God's character and God's redemption mm-hmm. and God's grace and God's love. And so the, the devil is very, very cunning to go, get rid of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's not have those sitting around yeah. showing people God. I, th- I think it's... We, we, we've got a highlight here, and this is often thrown out. Christians really are no better off than the rest of the world when it comes to marriage success rates. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that statistic is actually true. They'll often say that, you know, that Christian homes have the same sort of divorce rate as um, non-Christian homes. But I don't know if that's actually true. I th- I've seen some statistics that say that's actually not—it's a deceiving um, I've, thing I've to seen say st- because Christians are more also more likely to get married— um, and non-Christians are more likely to just live together. And yeah, not, there's more marriages going on. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. And so anyhow, um, but all, all that to say th- that Christians can go wrong in exactly the same ways that the rest of the world is going wrong. Yeah. We're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not sort of saying, well, we're we're immune to the pathologies that we see around us. But I will say that our society today is at a much different place than it was even when our nation was founded. That world was born, and a lot of the a lot of the laws that prohibited sodomy or that pr- or, or, or adultery or punished adulterers or whatever the case may be, a lot of those laws that were in place and are still on the books in some states um, were were written within a milieu of thought that and this is a Christian teaching that every person has two wills operating within him. He's got the rational will, and then he's got sort of the will of the appetites, the lower, the higher and the lower will exist within mankind. And a person is free to the extent that the higher will is able to master the lower will, yeah. right? And say, so my, so the rational mind, the mind, the, 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 the part of you that ascends to faith in God, the part of you that um, can uh, defer pleasure or gratification um, in in pursuit of a higher good or goal, that is your true self. And your lower self, um, your, those appetites, were the part of you that sought your ruin, and you needed to subject to the higher will. That was sort of the, the, the Christian teaching for centuries. Now we've, we've lost that entirely, and we just kind of think in terms of, well, I am my lower self. I am my appetites. And freedom is giving way to that completely. Uh, it's a totally upside down, topsy turvy sort of way of looking at mm. human nature. That's really what we're dealing with. Uh, is the opposite of a Christian uh, understanding of human nature. Yeah, people have been convinced that they're missing out on something. So that's the lie, right? That's why you pursue adultery. That's why you pursue a lot of other things that Scripture says are sin, because there's this this belief that somehow there's something better to be had, or, or you're missing out. So right, and it it comes down to. So I, I read a really, really good book in college called Sacred Marriage. Um, and the tagline of this book sort of sort of hit me like a train. Is that Gary Thomas? Gary Thomas. Gary Thomas. Sacred, sacred Marriage. And uh, he, the tagline of the book, I'll never forget, is, what if God made your marriage to make you holy, not to make you happy? Mm-hmm. And it's exactly to that distinction I think mm-hmm. you're you're talking about Ben and and his point was not don't have a miserable marriage right like mm-hmm. the the end of the book was not so go home and be miserable for the Lord yeah. um, but the point was God's design for marriage was primarily one of sanctification one of making you more like Him and happiness became a byproduct mm-hmm. of that holiness. And I think we've sort of flipped the script on that. We said, well, if my marriage makes me happy, a happy person is more likely to be holy because they're not grouchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we find is that the more you feed your desires without first submitting them to God's holiness and God's design, the more likely you are to be dragged away by those desires. You know, this is James's, you know, when um, – desire gives gives birth it gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully formed gives birth to death right that the longer we allow ourselves to give in to those things which are our most basic and unsanctified desires the more likely we are uh, to be led astray by them mm-hmm. well and it so kyle you're bringing you're bringing this round to uh paul's point in ephesians chapter five about the nature of marriage itself Marriage is not really even for us in yeah. in the ultimate sense. Um, Paul says in Ephesians five that 
specifically Christian marriage because Christian marriage is is superior to all other forms of marriage because it can it can approximate that for which God intended marriage from the beginning, which was to be a picture of Christ and the church, an icon of that highest marriage. The Bible is a, is a marriage story from the very beginning with a husband and a wife coming into existence and identifying the world to the very end with a groom and a bride coming together in a new heaven and a new earth. It's a marriage story. And our marriages are icons of that transcendent marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. So this whole idea about not committing adultery has to be fit fitted to this understanding, this theological understanding of the fact that our marriage is really to be picture of Christ and the church. I mean, yeah. could you imagine, what would it look like for Christ to commit adultery with his bride? Yeah. I mean, to choose another people, to forsake his obligations to his bride? I mean, imagine. Imagine. Or for us, as the bride, to forsake our obligations to Christ and the, the, the fealty and love and affection and intimacy we should have with Jesus and offer that to lesser things? And give that devotion to lesser things, you know, we can become still that, Van, to your point, that adulterous generation mm-hmm. uh, if we're not careful. Yeah, I think of Proverbs, you know, when the, the um, warning is given to the man, the young man, about the ways of the adulteress and just how wrecked your life will be if you mm-hmm. pursue that path. Mm-hmm. Don't fall for the trap. Don't Don't buy into the sweet words and the, mm-hmm. you know, the the attractiveness that's put in front of you it's mm-hmm. because behind that it's just, it's it's ugly yeah it's, it's i think it's proverbs says that the adulterous woman reduces a man's life to a loaf of bread yes some something to be consumed mm-hmm. yes um yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know i i also think you know we we're talking about all this stuff we have to avoid i think there's a there's sort of a a directedness in terms of our reaction to this as husbands and even as wives although we don't have a woman here sitting here who would be a wife in our podcast. But I will say this. One of the things I've never heard is Christians talk about porn. I've never heard anyone make what seems to be, should be the obvious point that at some level, pornography is unmanly, that consuming pornography is unmanly in the sense that it is directing your sexual interests toward the wrong uh, target. Uh, that manliness means, among other things, intentionally cultivating your sexual interest in your wife. Mm-hmm. And I think there are things men can do if they're if they're willing and conscious of it to really cultivate their sexual interest in their wives. But I think conversely, in a in a in a proper marriage, while men need to you know, divert their attention from all of the things clamoring for their attention in the culture and focus their sexual interest on their wives. I think wives also need to be intentionally receptive Mm -hmm. of their husband's sexual interests. Mm -hmm. And that's what is intended Mm -hmm. in the biblical model. And I think it is very much an achievable thing, but it, I think particularly in our cultural moment, it has to be something that is, thoughtfully pursued and not just i don't think you stumble into it uh because there aren't any other competing messages i've heard christian men say before out loud and even counsel their sons in this in this uh way of thinking that they look at pornography to keep them from committing adultery and it's like no no you're that's (laughs) not how that works um (laughs) That's not the way that works. Like, you look at pornography to keep yourself faithful to your wife. Um, first of all, I don't think you realize what you're saying about your wife. Um, right. That, that you need the pornography, Oof. you know, in order to stay faithful to her. Um, but it also sort of just flies right in the face of what Jesus himself said about if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. The very thing itself, yeah. pornography, the act itself is an act, as an adulterous yeah. act. And well, <clears throat> adultery and pornography share a similar uh, 
fallacy, a similar mistake in the sense that they boil down sex to a very particular thing. Mm -hmm. It becomes a singular act. It becomes either, you know, whatever you want to call it, whether it's emotional, a specific emotion, a specific physical In the service of immediate gratification. Yeah, it it becomes this one thing, and it... I think that's one of the reasons why, Keith, to your point, it becomes unmanly in the sense that it's saying uh, it's not going to require sacrifice. It doesn't require love. It doesn't require faithfulness. It doesn't require the man to act in the way that God has called him up to be. It is a man reducing himself to something lower or a woman reducing herself to something lower in order to achieve some experience um, that's ultimately unsatisfying. Well, if it helps anything— you know, for those that are in that industry that paint this picture of, boy, look at what you're missing out on. You know, Henry Rogers, when he wrote his book um, about the the battle and the war with porn, you know, he, he talks about meeting with a, a, a lady that was in the industry in a restaurant. He had a, a reporter with him and someone uh, videoing. And he asked her the question, said, what do you think about the guys that you're making these movies with? And she got really quiet and then began to say, I hate them. I hate them. I mean, to the point where she was screaming it and hitting the table. And what you find are, you know, they don't even want to be in that industry. It, because, again, this goes against the order of what God created us for and our purpose. And so they are going against his design. And so what you find are they get strung out on drugs. They get addicted. It's the only way they can numb their minds to even follow through with the things that they're doing on camera, right? And... uh and when they're all washed up and, and no longer attractive by the world's standards, then they find themselves broken, destitute, and living in poverty. Yeah, there's um, there's there's this idea that we miss, I think, when we talk about the sexual liberation, especially of women. And when you hear godly Christian women talk about this, I think they, they maybe carry, or carry a heavier weight with them when they say it. But there's an idea that a woman being married to a man you know, and her becoming "quote unquote" his property is somehow oppressive to women or um, to their you know, freedom of sexual expression or pursuit or whatever. Really, the whole idea behind um, the singularity and the devotion involved with marriage, monogamy, you could say, <laughs> is that you're protecting. You say it so scarily, monogamy. Yeah, monogamy. You you're protecting a woman from. Um, it's not that she's the property of that one man. You're protecting her from becoming the object of use for any man. Um, and she, she is entitled to yes, that one man. She gets that one man to be her man, and she becomes his woman. And so there's protections built in for that. That someone engaged like Van, to what you're you know you're talking about in the porn industry, yeah. she that woman has become the object of many men, and it's wrecked her life completely. And the um, the proverbs have a similar. A warning for the young man. He says, to waste your strength and then to look at your life after, you know, years of uh, promiscuity and say, I've given my best strength to others mm-hmm. and I have nothing to show for it. Well, Stephen Mansfield has a book. Um, <laughs> he wrote a couple of interesting books. Uh, he wrote a book called, um, I think it was called The Search for God in Guinness or something like that about the Guinness family in Ireland and um, the impact they had on their community. And then also, he wrote a book called, I think it was called Stephen Manfield's Book for Book of Manly Men or something like that. Kind of a, <laughs> a, a, a pr- provocative kind of a title. But he, I think the book is just, it kind of tells the stories of significant men in history. And one of the points that I think he makes in the book about pornography use and the, um, the epidemic, the pornography epidemic among uh, American men and women is a growing... There's a growing market for pornography among women, but especially men, particularly men. So he says men, when they engage in pornography use, are playing the part of cowards because they lack the courage to woo their woman. Hmm. Um, they're either lazy or cowardly because if they're married, they lack the energy and the fortitude to go and woo their wife into the bedroom, um, to romance her uh, in that way, they're lazy or cowardly, and that's an interesting way of talking about this p- particularly unmanly uh, habit of, of of pornography. Um, yeah, it's interesting. They uh, they've actually discovered that the generations that are that are, I guess, young adults now are having far less 
sex, which, you know, for a long time, Christians have been campaigning to keep, you know, young people from just going around. But they said they found out that like Gen Z is having far less sex than other cultures because of pornography. They're literally opting out of even the attempt to have promiscuous sex. Because well, they're just going, it's too much work. Billie it's Eilish, too much effort. Um, the pop star, the the young woman pop star, Billie Eilish, she she came out recently. It was not long ago, maybe within the last year or so. And and um, I think she was interviewed on the Howard Stern yeah. show, and she said that pornography has ruined her brain, has r- mm. absolutely ruined her brain. She started watching pornography at age oh, eleven. Man. She was oh, exposed man. to pornography and started watching oh. it. And she said the things that she did and allowed to be done to her where she thought she was supposed to enjoy and she says it has absolutely wrecked her life mm-hmm. um we've been saying that for a long time yeah. in the church but billy yeah. eilish this pop star comes out and says it and the whole world goes mm, maybe we should look at pornography different yeah you know, maybe when she, and she is not an outlier 13 is the average age for yeah. first exposure in the United States, and it's constantly going down. It's well, constantly and, getting younger. And so on the flip side, you know, when we, we talk about men when it comes to pornography and adultery, and rightly so because men have roving eyes. But I think on on the flip, what we're finding is that women have roving hearts. Um, and so whereas men are drawn by what they see, women tend to be drawn by the stories they're told mm. into adulterous situations. Uh, and so f- f- for, for instance... Um, Whereas men want image-based pornography, women tend to want literature-based pornography. Hmm. They want uh, they they like the stories that they're being told. And so, Fifty Shades of Grey became the most um, wide widely popular and successful novel in history. In history, um, and it was bought almost exclusively by women. Um, it's a shocking uh, statistic, but true. Um, yeah, women women are drawn to it as well, but theirs is an emotional affair, mm. uh, and I think I think we're looking for the thing that God designed us for in all of the wrong places, yeah. um, rather than rather than cultivating the relationship with our spouse that we should cultivate. To your point, Dad, we're we're we're, we're looking for the cheap, inexpensive, lazy, cowardly way out, mm-hmm. and it's it's wrecking the world as it turns out because the world as God designed it has marriage as the as its foundation and backbone yeah you know? for sure and so if i guess if if adultery is the you know there's a really really interesting phrase that the old testament keeps using uh when it talks about marriage and specifically when it warns against adultery and it's uh the wife of your youth is a phrase that's used over and over and over in the old testament and it's a particular claim that there is a woman who entrusted herself to you as your spouse when you were both young, when 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 you were young and you had maybe less to give the world than you do now and you were maybe less wealthy or less capable or whatever, and most of God's commands to young men, or I guess at that point maybe to middle-aged men, is do not forsake the wife of your youth. And it's this powerful, this powerful statement because he's saying she gave you everything. Mm-hmm. She entrusted her life her her safety, her her prospects, her future to you when you maybe didn't have as much to give uh, as maybe you do now. And now when you're stable and you've maybe got your life figured out, you, the thought that you would abandon her now, the thought that you would give up on those promises you made now uh, is meant to be a pretty heinous accusation. Yeah. That that's the kind of man you would turn out to be. Yeah. Um, I think that I think the other thing that we can do and remember I think in keeping us on a a proper track in terms of our relationships is to remember our vows Hmm. I think that um, you know I've learned you know that very often in in complicated and circumstances and in situations of uncertainty sometimes deciding what to do can be hard Hmm. and confusing uh but if you if you've made promises that sometimes drains complicated circumstances of their uncertainty because at that point if you've made a vow it kind of doesn't matter what this the variables are in the circumstance 
if you're any kind of man, you keep your vow, right? And so I think this is this is the case where, you know, people are debating, you know, can I look at porn? You know, is it flirting if I'm just talking online? I mean, you know, all these sort of rationalizations that people want to do for themselves. But you made a promise if you had any kind of vows that were substantive at your wedding uh, to keep yourself for that person only. And so, you know, all of these things that seem complicated and we want to have all these debates, you know, sometimes they just boil down to you need to keep your promise. Well, and and those vows, um, I think we need to understand. I counsel young people when I do premarital counseling that marriage is not happily ever after if you understand happiness as simply being getting what you want from life. Right. The marriage vows that you take actually restrict your access to getting what you want all the time Um, because it's in the restriction of our appetites that we find true freedom and happiness. Um, and if we don't understand that about our vows, then then we're missing the point of the vows themselves. I mentioned this before. Um, I don't know if I don't remember if it was in this conversation or if if it was in another one um, that we recorded recently. But I'm I'm a big fan of the story Lame as Rob. I, I love the book. I I love the musical just as much, if not maybe more. I love the musical Lame as Rob. I think it's just a stunning um, a- achievement. But one of the more haunting songs, beautiful, just hauntingly beautiful songs in that production is the song that Fontaine sings called um, I Dreamed a Dream. And I want to read the lyrics to this song because it highlights what we're talking about, the necessity of not forsaking uh, the woman or the wife of your youth and um, the necessity of making vows and how that contributes to overall well-being. Here's, here's what Fontaine sings after her life completely falls apart um, and you'll you'll get sort of why that why her life falls apart from the lyrics. She sings, and I'm not going to sing it, by the way. Um, <laughs> oh man, I'm going to read it. But uh, she she says she sings. There was a time when men were kind, when their voices were soft and their words inviting. There was a time when love was blind and the world was a song and the song was exciting. There was a time, then it all went wrong. I dreamed a dream in times gone by, when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. Then I was young and unafraid, and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted. And listen to this. But the tigers come at night with their voices soft as thunder. As they tear your hope apart, as they turn your dream to shame. He slept a summer by my side. He filled my days with endless wonder. He took my childhood in his stride, but he was gone when autumn came. And still I dream he'll come to me, that we will live the years together. But there are dreams that cannot be. There are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. This, uh, she's, she's articulating the tragedy of sexual liberation that our world throws a, a, a blanket over uh, and covers it up. Don't look. Don't look over here because living life, throwing your youth into just sleeping around and having fun and you know partying, and that doesn't lead to fulfillment or happiness or joy uh, or meaning. It, it leads to ruin and devastation. Um. I hate, I hate the condition that she's in when she sings the song, but I love the fact that she sings it and, and, and that the story tells that part of the tale that I think our culture doesn't want to tell. Yeah, yeah. I think if I could offer a word of encouragement to people that maybe have found themselves already on that path or have mm. committed adultery in some form or fashion, uh, if there's one thing the book of Hosea teaches us, is that God still comes after us. He wants us, and there's a chance to be healed. There's a chance to pursue what is right and to repent and experience the good design that he created for you to have in a relationship, uh, to be devoted to him as your God. And um, and God is so patient over and over with Israel in, in that book of, of Hosea. 
Um, and so if you think that maybe you've just blown it and you're beyond redemption, it's just not true. I mean, even now, God can bring healing, I think, to the heart, to the mind, um, what you've put before your eyes, what you've done physically, whatever the case happens to be, I think the Lord can bring true healing and, and restoration um, well, if you'll just turn to him. And, and, yeah. and to your point, I guess, and to tell the rest of the story, that's exactly what happens in Fontaine's life. Um, she does die from the diseases that she incurs from um, the, the, you know, she falls into prostitution just to keep herself alive and be able to pay for the child that she had by some other guy. But then, an, then a man comes into her life who rescues her from the mire and puts her in the hospital and adopts her daughter as his own um, and provides for her, gives her a life and a future. But this is a man who all of that happens for Fontaine and um, for Cosette and for all the other characters. Their lives are redeemed because there was a man who had benefited from the grace of God um, when when he was up against the wall. Um, so, Van, you're going to have to watch the musical. At some point, you're just going to have to <laughs> yeah, sit down you and, see it. and do it. Well, and I think the, the common thread between those two stories, I, I can't imagine that uh, that story is not somehow connected to the story of, of Hosea in one, in one form or another because they're both about uh, pursuit, mm-hmm. right? That we, we talk about this, that, that the goal of fidelity in marriage is not that you both just go, well, we'd rather be somewhere else, so we'll, but we're not supposed to, so we're just going to... We're gonna stuck. S- we're going to be stuck, sit on this couch, uh, you know, and, and just waste away. It's about, it's about pursuit. Nothing, nothing awakens desire like pursuing and being pursued within the covenant of marriage because that is what the man was designed to be and that was what the woman was designed to 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 find and to seek and to and to receive and it's a it's a beautiful thing when you find someone who in their marriage has made promises to their spouse and then pursues their spouse does everything within their power to say I'm going to I'm going to dive headfirst into this marriage thing and if that means if that means learning, you know, all the all the things you enjoy doing on a weekend or if that means learning to cook the food that you like to cook or if that means learning, you know what, you prefer it when I do the dishes so that, you know, your day can be filled with a little bit less work. Doing what is necessary to pursue that person, I think, has to be the positive side of that for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talked about the marriage relationship restricting you pursuing everything that you want, you know. Less than I've, we've experienced that. I came home one day. I, I was wanting mashed potatoes. She made cauliflower mashed potatoes. It's just I didn't get what I wanted. I mean, it, it's a cheap <laughs> but, substitute. You know? But you had to fall back on your vow. You're not yeah. gonna, right. I did. I said, yeah. right. you're not going to leave her over cauliflower mashed potatoes. You know? That's yeah, the, not this. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I want to. I mean, not to be, go heavy here all of a sudden on this, but I want to just say that um, that these are not theoretical concerns. Mm. Right. This is yeah. these are matters of life and death, spiritual life and death, and even physical life and death. I mean, kind of to Ben's illustration with the story in Les Miserables. I'm Les Miserables. I think you know Fontaine lost her life. I will say, you know, if anybody listening to this podcast thinks we're just a bunch of church guys sitting around talking about things that are distant from us and sort of theoretical, you know, so I'll just say someone very precious to me, more precious than my own life, is dead today because she believed the lies the culture is telling about uh, unrestricted boundaries in terms of sexual pursuits. Mm -hmm. And I would just tell you as a witness and uh, someone who's been deeply affected that these are not trivial theoretical concerns. These are not... The, the discussion is really not about some God being some bossy pants who wants to destroy all our fun. These are matters of life and death and and getting your thinking straight and rejecting the lies the culture is being uh, telling you may make the difference between whether you live or die. And I can speak as a witness and someone who's been deeply affected by this very truth. Yeah, the God views people as either sheep or children. Um, he rarely ever views anyone as a confidant, although I think Moses sort of achieved that 
that status with God at one point. Um, it, Moses is referred to in kind of an interesting way, but um, we don't tend to think of ourselves that way. But if if you if you remember that you're a child, that you're a sheep, that you don't know what's best for you, then it kind of helps to put God's rules into perspective. I have children. Um, my my three year old daughter wants to do some things and play with things or whatever that wouldn't be good for her. Like, you know, don't turn the dials on the stove. Um, don't do that. It's not good for you. Well, that may seem like an arbitrary rule, but she can't understand what I can see coming down the road for someone who makes those kinds of mistakes. It's not oppressive. It's out of love and care and concern from a wiser being to, to restrict access um, to just unhinged pursuit of whatever we want to do. We, even, even in our adulthood, we're still children. We cannot see all ends. God can. And so the, the, the boundaries that he puts in place for us are for our good um, and for our thriving in the world that he's created. And it's good for us to remember that, I think. This has been another Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.